I want to thank Brother David for uh, introducing us to some new music during this series. I know that anytime we have new music, it makes it a little more difficult for some because they don't know it and they're trying to learn the melody and, and this and that, but um, uh, there, there's a lot of great music that, that's being written today or in the, in the recent years that, that has some really great, deep meaning. And um, as we were singing this last song, He Will Hold Me Fast, um, you know, I'll just be frank, I, 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 I became emotional as I, I sang verse 3. Um, For my life He bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Um, faith is the essence of why we are here week to week. We are, we are trusting, we are believing in what Jesus has done, yes, but also in what Jesus will someday do. And um, to think about that day when our faith, which is the evidence of things not seen, will become seen, um, is a pretty amazing thing to think about. Well, we are continuing our study from the book of Hebrews this morning, and we'll be focused in on the end of chapter 10. Uh, and since we started this series in the middle of a book, uh, rather than at the beginning of the book, uh, we are somewhat at a disadvantage in seeking to understand the cultural and the historical context for this portion of Scripture. Now, I have shared some things with you over the last couple of weeks, uh, but I would like to take a moment uh, to take a closer look at the recipients of this letter that we refer to as the book of Hebrews. Now, the interesting thing is, is this book of Hebrews, there is no New Testament book that has had more background research done uh, for it than this book. None of the other books in the rest of the New Testament has spawned a greater diversity of opinions about it. R. Kent Hughes explained, he said, virtually all agree that the grand theme of this epistle is the supremacy and finality of Christ. He continues, says, a consensus also exists regarding the general identity of the recipients, that they were a group of Jewish Christians who had never seen Jesus in person, yet had believed in Jesus. Their conversion had brought them hardship and persecution with the result that some of those who said that they had believed in Christ slipped back into Judaism. So, he says... There is a general agreement as to the theme, the purpose, the spiritual status of the recipients. 
the anonymity and ability of the author, but from here the mystery darkens, he says. For no scholar has yet proven the exact destination or occasion of the letter. They don't know exactly where these people were or who these people were that received this letter. Now he continued on and he explained that contemporary scholars tentatively propose that the letter was written to a small house church of beleaguered Jewish Christians that were living somewhere in the vicinity of Rome in the mid-60s. And to clarify, we're not talking about the 1960s. We're talking about the 60s, 60s, A.D., uh, 60, 61, 62, somewhere in that range. Because we know it took place, this letter took place before the destruction of the uh, temple in Jerusalem. So this is going to be my working supposition as we continue on through this study in the book of Hebrews. And that is that the book of Hebrews was written by an anonymous writer, but a, a very capable Jewish Christian leader and he was writing it to a group of Jewish Christians who were living somewhere in Italy probably the vicinity of Rome now this group of believers is most likely a group that has experienced or lived through the persecution that took place under Emperor Claudius the Roman Emperor Claudius in AD 49 they were living now under the rule and the reign of Emperor Nero, who came to power in AD 54. Now, uh, the expulsion of Christians from Rome after the great fire in Rome took place in AD 64. Uh, that's when Nero blamed the Christians for starting the fire that he himself had started. And so, since there is no mention of that event, in the book of Hebrews, what we can surmise is that this book, this letter was written somewhere between AD 54 and AD 64, uh, but most likely it was written closer to the end of that event because uh, the author of Hebrews is telling them in our text today to remember back to the persecution that you experienced. Now, it doesn't take me uh, much to remember back a couple of years because a lot of times when I'm thinking back a couple of years I think well the other day you know but if I'm thinking back 15 years you know there's enough distance there that yeah it's 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 been a while and so we think probably that this book was written just before AD 64 uh, when they went uh, underwent great persecution. Now another thing that we note about the recipients of this book, um, we're going to get to chapter 12 uh, next week, but the following week we'll talk about this verse, chapter 12 verse 4. According to that verse, none of the members of this group had yet been martyred for their faith or literally given of their blood for faith in Christ. And we know that martyrdom became a common occurrence uh, among Christians in Rome following A.D. 64. 
And so we're in this window here. Uh, under the, the rule of the evil, malicious Roman Emperor Nero, and now the author of this book is trying to encourage them to stand firm in their faith. He's trying to admonish this group of Jewish Christians, as R. Kent Hughes says, who were scared stiff. He said some had begun to avoid contact with outsiders. Some had even withdrawn from fellowshipping with the community of believers. That's why in 1025 it says, not neglecting the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. So the author feared that there may be those, if they were arrested, they would succumb to the pressure of being, you know, doing whatever it took to be released from the Roman uh, government. And what was that? It was denying their faith in Christ. It was apostasy, a public denial. Well, last week we looked at verses 26 through 31, what Dr. Hughes refers to as one of the most chastening warnings in all of Scripture. He says there is no more aggressive, hard-hitting passage in God's Word. And can I just add to that, I agree wholeheartedly. David, there were some things in last week's message that were disturbing to me. Um, frankly, it was probably the most difficult passage that I've ever tried to exposit in my 34 years of preaching. Um, it, was, it was a tough tough passage and the crazy thing about it is is that the previous section of verses uh, verses 19 through 25 is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture I love what the author has to say there in 19 through 25 and then he just slaps us with what he has in 26 through 31 but folks the thing is as much as I would have liked to have done that, especially with this series, we cannot pick and choose what we like or what we don't like, what we believe or what we don't believe in the scripture. Paul said all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man, oh, I skipped teaching. Let me back up. All scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17. So we can't skip those portions that we don't like. Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the, uh, historically what is referred to as the Jefferson Bible. Are you familiar with that? Thomas Jefferson um, thought that the Bible was a good book, but he didn't like all the parts of it. So he literally went in and would cut sections out that he didn't want to read, that he didn't want to think about, that he didn't want to believe. Folks, we can't do that. We have to take all of God's word. So today we've moved past this difficult section and we move forward to this 
uh, section that is uh, an attempt at encouraging this beleaguered group of Christ followers in Rome as they are enduring the, the trials and the difficulties related to living out their faith under the malicious reign of Emperor Nero. So I want to invite you to look at Hebrews chapter 10. We will begin reading in verse 32 and read through the end of the chapter. The Bible says, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You know, I am blessed um, to have a great number of resources at my disposal in order to pre prepare to teach each week. Um, usually what I do is I will go through all of the different resources that I, that I have that are addressing a, a certain topic or I'll, you know, if I come across something, I'll go and get a, a reference book that, that will have information about that particular topic that I need to go into and and I will compile all of these thoughts and these concepts um, from all these different sources to create what is a somewhat unique outline for our study week to week um, but this week I, I just for full um, uh, disclosure uh, I am utilizing the outline for this passage that was developed by Dr. R. Kent Hughes in his Preaching the Word commentary on the book of Hebrews. And the reason that I did that is, you know, there are many different ways to consider this passage. There are many different aspects to consider from these verses that we just read. But Dr. Hughes does an amazing job of consolidating these ideas into two main headings. And those are remembering the past and responding to the present. And so as we consider this first portion of our passage, in light of everything that we just talked about concerning the recipients of this letter, this beleaguered group of Jewish Christians living in Rome under difficult circumstances under the reign of Nero. As we consider all of that, we can better understand their frame of reference as ones who have undergone this immense persecution with even greater persecution looming in their future. And yet the author encourages them to remember their past. 
Look back and remember what has happened. Look at everything they have endured for the cause of Christ. And, he, and then he challenges them to persevere in living by faith. So let's look at these two main points that Dr. Hughes gives us. And then I've got one additional point that I will add at the end. So remembering the past. Verses 32 through 34. The first thing that we see is a time of struggle with suffering it says. This is a time of struggle and suffering. Here in verse 32 the author's challenging them to recall how they had marvelously stood unmoved some 15 years earlier during the persecution of the Roman Emperor Claudius back in AD 49. Now this word struggle, when it, it talks about a struggle with suffering, this word comes from the Greek word athlesis, which is what we get our English word athletic from. And so this is a, this is a mighty struggle that, that's requiring, uh, you know, athletic effort, you know. According to the ESV expository commentary, this word has overtones both of military combat as well as a sports uh, event. Since these activities were so closely connected in the Greco-Roman world. And so uh, the persecution was a hard-fought battle. And the interesting thing here that Dr. Hughes pointed out was that it was, um, well, let me tell you, he says it was an athletic contest viewed by a partisan crowd. You know what that tells me? They were going into someone else's home court, and they did not have the home court advantage. You know, they talk about when, which, by the way, um, I did not have time to watch the Razorback game yesterday, so no one tell me about it. I'd like to watch it later. But I'll use Bud Walton Arena as an example. They talk about how Bud Walton Arena is one of the greatest uh, places to be able to play because of the tremendous home court advantage. Now, this, this illustration fails miserably if we lost, but I don't know if we lost, so y'all just let that be, okay? But going into somebody else's home court is difficult. You know, uh, not that I'm an advocate of the Texas A&M Aggies, but on their football stadium, all around the football stadium, you know what it says? The 12th man. You see, they have an advantage of 12 versus 11 because of the crowd noise. 100,000 people in that stadium. There aren't 100,000 people in College Station, I don't think, you know. But they went into an area that was difficult because not just what they were enduring, but because of the crowd that surrounded them. This is going to have a whole lot of impact when we get to chapter 12. And if you don't know why, just wait on and, and you'll see. They were surrounded by a partisan crowd that was against them. And the author tells them, remember what you endured. Remember how you stood your ground. And so I wonder this morning, how many of us are ready to stand firm in the face of persecution?
these, these believers in Rome did. But the second thing we see here is not that it was just a time of struggle and suffering, but it was a, a time of reproach and shame. The idea here is that they were being made a public, a public spectacle. A public spectacle. And the Greek word for reproach here is the word that we get our word theater from. And so it was like they were put on stage and they were publicly ridiculed. How many of us are ready to stand tall when the target of malicious lies and hate speech are directed at us for our faith in Christ? The third thing it talks about here is it was a time of imprisonment. The text says that they had compassion on those in prison. Now this is referring to some of their fellow church members who had been imprisoned for their faith. Now when we think about prison, our frame of reference is not what it ought to be for understanding imprisonment in Scripture. In biblical times. You see in the first century. Prisoners had no means of survival. Apart from visits from friends. Who would bring them food and water and clothing. It wasn't like it is today. If you get thrown in prison. You get three meals a day. And internet access. And you get to go work out in the, uh, you know, on the weights in the gym. And play basketball. And hang out with your friends. That was not prison in the first century. If someone on the outside did not take care of your needs, you starved to death. You froze to death. You had nothing if it were not for those friends. And so when it says here that they... Um, had compassion on those in prison. They were taking care of the needs. But when they, when they identified themselves with those who had been imprisoned for them, their faith, it endangered them as well. I mean, because they were standing for the same thing that that person was in prison for. So just showing up to provide for these people's needs was dangerous. So these Jewish believers were doing their best. <clears throat> these Jewish Christians were doing their best to follow the teachings of Christ. When he taught how we are to interact with other, one another. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25? He said, for when I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. I wonder how many of us are ready to stand up and help those who are in need. The final thing that we see here of what he told them to remember was to remember the time of financial turmoil. Let me reread verse 34. It says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Did you notice their, 
their attitude toward their personal property? The attitude toward their personal property when their persecutors were plundering it was they accepted it joyfully. I mean, it's one thing to accept it, but to accept it filled with joy because it was happening, that frankly does not compute in my mind or the minds of most Americans today. I mean, how do we typically act when we feel that we've been mistreated in some way or we've been cheated in some way, especially when it comes to finances? You know, uh, you order something and you go through the drive-thru and you get it and you take it home and you look at it and it's not what you ordered. How do you feel? You know, there's two ways of looking at that. Well, they did not fulfill what I asked and I paid for it and they should fulfill it. And so a lot of times people will call and they will give them the what for, right? I mean, there is another way of looking at it of, hey, they gave you food, so, you know. <laughs> but that's, that's our perspective on dealing with being cheated. Or what about, you know, if there was an error at the bank? Let's say you deposited a $1,000 check in the bank. I mean, it's a very simple mistake. Put in 100 instead of 1000 Would Would you be upset about that? <laughs> Struck a chord there, you know. <clears throat> How many of us would deal with this plundering of our personal property the way these Jewish Christians did? The interesting thing is, is that they found themselves exhilarated by their loss because they knew that they had a better possession. They knew that they had what the scripture says, an abiding possession. They believed Jesus' words when he said in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. <clears throat> Over the last couple of years, we've been working to clean out my parents' home of 37 years. Um, any of you who have gone through that kind of thing, you understand the difficulty there. Well... Uh, praise the Lord, my mom has a contract on her house, and, um, but uh, that means we've got to get everything out. And you know, just frankly, having this attitude of it's just stuff, it's hard for us. It doesn't matter who you are, it's hard for us. But I wonder this morning, how many of us are ready to lay down all that we possess here on this earth and give it all up for the sake 
of Christ. These Jewish Christians living in the vicinity of Rome were joyfully doing just that. So there's four things to remember here. Four challenges to fulfill. And that is we need to stand firm in the face of persecution. We need to stand tall in the midst of reproach and shame. We need to stand up for those who are hurting and in need. And we need to lay down all that we possess for the sake of Christ. Jesus said it best in Matthew 16 when he said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You see, this ragtag band of Jewish Christians living in Rome had a rich history of doing what God wanted them to do in faith. And so the author has challenged them to remember the past. Remember the validation of their faith in the past. And then secondly, he says, and now respond to the present. Responding to the present. In verse 35, it tells us, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. The first thing that we notice is that in responding to the present, they need to respond in confidence. Why is it so important to respond with confidence? Well, I want to share a, a, just a brief illustration, a story, a true story um, that uh, is about the flying Walendas. Have you ever heard of the flying Walendas? Several of you have. Well, the Flying Walendas are a circus family that have been around for almost 200 years now. Um, it, you know, and if I was like, wow, are they still around? They've got a Facebook page. I looked at it this week. But um, they perform high wire acts. They do all sorts of acrobatics. You know, they're, they're the people who will ride a, a bicycle across a high wire. They're the ones who perfected the, the seven-person pyramid walking across a high wire. I don't know if you've ever seen videos or pictures of that. But it's, it's crazy daredevil kind of stuff. Well, in 1978, Carl Walinda, who I think, if I re remember correctly, he, he had been performing since 1922. So... Um, he was pretty old in 1978. But Carl Walenda fell to his death trying to traverse a 75-foot-high tightrope that was uh, put between two buildings in downtown San Juan, Puerto Rico. He, he you know, was doing this. He had done it many times before. But that day, he fell and was killed. Uh, his wife reflected on this accident, and this is what she said. All Carl thought about for three straight months prior to that day was the possibility of falling. It was the first time he'd ever thought about that. And it seemed to me that he put all his energies into not falling rather than into walking the tightrope. He was so focused on not falling that he lost his focus on actually doing 
what he needed to do. Even though he had had years of successful experiences on the tightrope, he lost his confidence, which contributed to his death. Well, folks, walking in faith, although not always feeling like a tightrope, sometimes does feel like a tightrope. Walking in faith day by day requires confidence. And amens ring out throughout the building. It requires confidence in order to be successful. We've got to be confident in our faith and in our walk. Now, folks, you may be struggling in your confidence today, but if you are, it is an unnecessary struggle. Did you hear me? If you are struggling in your walk, it is unnecessary because our confidence is not in us, but our confidence rests in God. There's no reason to lack confidence in our faith because of the one in whom our faith is placed. And so the author is challenging his readers to convey confidence in the face of opposition, to convey confidence in the face of persecution, not confidence in themselves or in their abilities, but confidence in the one in whom they had placed their faith. And that is none other than Jesus Christ. So when responding to the presence, we must first respond in confidence. Secondly, we must respond in perseverance. Now, verse 36 talks about this. It says, for you have need of endurance. That, that's the same idea of, as perseverance. You have a need to endure, it says. Now, we need to clarify this endurance or this perseverance is not needed to earn salvation. Salvation is a free gift of grace. Perseverance, though, is the visible evidence of that grace that has done its work in your life. When we persevere, when we endure in our faith, it is the evidence of what Jesus did in me and now is doing through me. The author admonishes us to not throw away our confidence in verse 34. And so now in verse 35, he is giving us the positive corollary, which is that we need to have endurance. Yes, we should be confident. Don't throw away your confidence, but rather endure. So perseverance is evidence of saving faith, not an effort to earn saving faith. Do you remember last week as we utilized the parable of the sower or what I prefer to call the parable of the soils uh, to help us understand what apostasy is? Uh, if you didn't get a chance to hear that because you were snowed in or whatever, I encourage you to check out the podcast or go back to the Facebook stream or, or go online and get it from the website, whatever. But I encourage you to, to listen to that if you can. You see, the apostates were the ones 
whose faith did not endure. Remember? They were the ones who, who the seed was sown, the word of God was sown in the rocky soil. And it had no root, so it sprung up, but it didn't last because it wasn't real. Or it was the, the seed that was sown among the thorny soil. And the cares of this world choked it out. It didn't have the ability to, to last because it wasn't real. If your faith is real, it will be a faith that lasts. Did you hear that? If your faith is real, you will persevere. If your faith is real, you will endure. Why? Because of who we have faith in. It's not about you enduring, but it is your faith enduring because your faith is in Jesus Christ. So the key to successful perseverance is faith. So we must respond in perseverance, but thirdly, we must respond in persevering faith. Verses 37 through 39, uh, here the author is quoting from uh, the minor prophet named Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk uh, is, the, the, the book is very short, thus the reason it's a minor prophet. You may or may not realize this. Do you know what the difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets are? The major prophets, their books are longer than the minor prophets. That's pretty much it. Um, uh, there, there are some that are like, oh, that's close, but you know, we'll talk about that another time. But the minor prophet Habakkuk, a very short book in the Old Testament, and if you can find it, kudos. Uh, see if you can find that, because I'm going to read a little bit from it in just a moment. But in Habakkuk, Habakkuk is repeatedly complaining about injustices that were taking place in his world. He was complaining about all of the suffering of, of the righteous people that was going on. And so he's saying, Lord, how long are you going to let this happen? And God responded to Habakkuk. And you know what God said to him? He said, Habakkuk? The righteous will live by faith. The just, those who have been justified, the righteous ones, those who have been declared righteous by God, they will live their life by faith. That's Habakkuk 2 verse 4. Now later in Habakkuk's writing, when the prophet had allowed this truth to sink in, he rose above this depression that he had been experiencing. And he rose above the complaints that he was making. And he sang a beautiful song that we find in Habakkuk 3, verses 17 and 18. Right at the end of this short little book, Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. 
I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He got it. The Lord said that the righteous will live by faith. And he got it. Even though I go through all sorts of turmoil, financial ruin, ruin in my business, no food for my family. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Did you know Habakkuk 2 verse 4 is the most, I'm going to back up, is one of the most quoted scripture from the Old Testament in the New Testament of any? There may be one that's quoted more, but I'm not certain of that right now because I didn't research that this week. So don't hold me to that. But Habakkuk 2 verse 4 is quoted three times in the New Testament. You see, in Romans chapter 1 verse 17, Paul quotes this and says, The just shall live by faith, or the righteous shall live by faith. And he quotes Habakkuk 2.4 in order to explain that salvation is totally by faith. Nothing else. Salvation is by faith. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, once again, Paul quotes this passage in Habakkuk 2.4 to demonstrate that keeping the law was insufficient in order to receive the promised blessings of God. It wasn't about keeping the law. It was about trusting in the God of the law, trusting in Christ and what he had done. And so he said, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. And then here in Hebrews 10, 38, the author quotes Habakkuk 2, verse 4, to stress that the whole Christian life is to be lived by faith. So what do we need to take from this today? Well, if you look back at Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 31, the first thing we need to notice is that Jesus is coming back. He will come back and will not delay. Jesus is coming back soon. Verse 38, we see that the saved will persevere in their faith. And verse 39, we see that the lost will shrink back and deny him. So on the basis of this argument, we understand that the grand key for perseverance is faith. Knowing this, we are set up for the greatest exposition on the subject of faith found anywhere in Scripture, and that is what we're going to start looking through next week in Hebrews chapter 11, most often referred to as the faith chapter. So I told you earlier that I, I was using Dr. Kent Hughes's outline, remembering the past, responding to the present, and I want to add one additional point to that, and that is... Preparing for the future. Preparing for the future. In your recharge books this session, 
uh, in this sermon series, I've encouraged you to pick up a copy of this book, The Line of Faith by Bill Elif. There are still a few copies out there. You're not too far behind. You're, you absolutely can, can catch up uh, this week. Uh, Chapters 5 through 8, it's a 40-day devotional, so days 5 through 8 were what were read this week for the Recharge book. And one of the things that you read this week was on day 6, the, the devotional title is Making Room for God. And he, he points out in that, in that devotional, uh, Matthew chapter 9, and so I want to I take just a moment and look at Matthew chapter 9 to see some of the things that are recorded here in 9. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, it says, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Then in verse 20, it says, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Then in verse 27, it says, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. Bill Elif wrote, why did God record these rapid-fire multiple accounts that all center on faith? He answers his own question and he says he was training the twelve and he was training all of us who would read these accounts because his desire is to continually increase our faith capacity. And so as he was talking about this, he talked about how that faith makes room for God in our lives. Faith makes room for God. He says our unbelief aborts God's activity. Obviously, God can do whatever he desires. But when it comes to men and women, God has ordained that there must be one response to him and that one response to God must be that we believe in him he goes on and said and such faith opens the door for God for God to do what only God can do in and through us in every act of the common day this is consistent with Hebrews 11 Verse 6 that we're going to be talking about in two weeks. Which says that without faith it is impossible to please God. The Apostle John would later add in his letter, 1 John 5 verse 4. He said, this is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. Our faith is the victory, he said. So what do we learn here from 
Brother Bill, in this day six devotional, we learn that God doesn't need our faith, but he sure does want it. He wants us to have faith in him. And our faith in him is what opens the door for God to work in us and for God to work through us. And so as we are are remembering the past and as we're responding to all of the things that are happening to us on a day-to-day basis, I pray today that you are preparing for the future also by making room for God to work in your life. Are we making room for God? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the truth of your word, even those things that are difficult and those things that uh, are just blessings. Uh, Father, we thank you for all of it. And Father, we thank you for Uh, choosing to allow us through faith to have new life in you through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we live our life each day by faith, I just pray, Father, that you would help us to trust you more. Help us to, to make room for you. Help us to believe in you because, Lord, we know our unbelief limits the work that you will do in and through us. So, Father, I pray this morning, increase our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.